Welcome to So Here's the Thing, where we share candid conversations that lift the veil on what it takes to find success, even if that means sharing a few unpopular opinions. I'm your host, Leili Amati. Grab some coffee or a cocktail, and let's get real. Hey friends, welcome back to the show. I am so excited to have my dear friend, Natalie Frank, back with us. She's been on the podcast gosh, I think at least twice, right? Um, And I'm so excited to have her back because this is going to be just such an amazing conversation because Natalie is, as we all know, the queen of community over competition. I actually think, didn't you just trademark that? Like it's, it's yours. This is, this is your phrase. And she's literally written the book on it. Wow. That was the cheesiest thing I've ever said in my life, but it just came out and I'm going to go with it. I really like the fact that you did actually write the book on community over competition and that people are going to be able to read it and and have it. I got an early copy. I'm super excited to be part of your launch team. And I'm excited to talk about community over competition and what that means. And more so, I'm excited to kind of have a conversation with you about what it looks like to reframe the concept of competition so that it's not stealing away all of our joy, so that it's not getting in our way on a daily basis. So I'm going to just kick it over to you, Nat, and you can just tell us all about you know the book and, and what you're doing with it and how we can maybe tangibly and tactically reframe our concept of competition in this creative space. Oh, thank you for having me back. It is a life goal of mine now to be the most frequent guest on your podcast. I don't know if I'm there yet, but third time of many, I hope, I hope uh, you keep bringing me back. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to start here. I think this is a good place to start because sometimes when people hear this phrase community over competition, or, you know, they engage with content that is super community centric, super pro collaboration, it can, it can feel a little bit like, are we trying to ignore the existence of competition? Or are we somehow, you know, saying that we want a life without competition? And what was really interesting is in writing this book and actually sitting down to write about this concept and this mindset and tackle it from a level of depth that I have never done before, bringing in science, bringing in, you know, neuroscience and psychology, talking about it through the lens of of an athlete to a professional, to a mother, to, you know, just being a human being and how it can sometimes feel as though competition is a part of every single facet of our lives. It isn't just limited to how we perhaps compete as business owners. It isn't just limited to how we might compete uh, in trying to rise up in our career and become you know, a more, more advanced professional. It doesn't just exist in our relationships with other people. Competition is a part of every aspect of our life. And I started by kind of asking the question, why, why is this? Why do we feel this constant need to compete? And, and why does sometimes it feel subtle and almost subconscious and other times it's almost like it's screaming at us. Like I think about, you know, we talk about Instagram and comparison and the scroll all the time. And that's when it's screaming at us. That's when we're being confronted with it, but it's also these subtle moments of how we judge ourselves, right? How we second guess ourselves, how we've been almost trained to, to doubt ourselves because we're measuring up to somebody else's success metric, or we're trying to kind of see, well, how did she do? How did they do? What are they, how are they performing in their life? And again, not just in their career, in every single aspect of how we look at ourselves against other people, there's this, this very undercurrent that, that tends to rise up and that is competition. And the truth here is that, yes, we are built to belong. And that's the title of the book built to belong, but we are also wired to compete. So 
in, in one, in one aspect, we are created for community. We are meant to be social creatures. We are, you know, very much designed to live with other human beings in community. And, and we see that from all different perspectives, historical, sociological, psychological, like you name it, you look at it from whatever lens you want to look at it. Human beings are social creatures. We are meant for one another. And at the same time, as a, as a, a species, we also want to survive. And that survival instinct is very much integrated into our need to compete. And what's interesting is that as we move into the current uh, climate, the current world we live in, we're not necessarily going out into the forest and competing for food in the same way that maybe our ancestors did or into wherever your ancestors are from, competing for resources at a very basic level. Although we still do, just it looks very different. This competition emerges from within us in all different places, how we view ourselves and other people and our relationships, as I've mentioned, in all these different capacities, because we are wired to compete. And competition, look, it gets a really bad rap. Even when I talk about it, you know, with community over competition, it's like the enemy oftentimes. And, and the truth is it's not. Competition is not inherently a bad thing. Competition actually has a purpose. It serves a purpose in our in our bodies. It acts as a performance enhancing drug of sorts in our brain that pushes us to be better versions of ourselves when healthy. And so in the book, I, I talk about very specific studies that have been done where essentially you can look at it like a gymnast or a weightlifter and a weightlifter will lift more weight simply in the presence of another human being than that weightlifter will weight will lift alone. So by having one other person in the arena, even if it's just an observer and not a direct competitor, it changes the level of performance and output that a person has. And we've all felt this, you know, we've, if you've ever played a sport, it's different when you're training alone, we're, you know, maybe you're in a gym and now there's other people around you, you're more cognizant, maybe you're pushing yourself a little bit harder, maybe you don't even know that you're doing it, but you notice that you're propelled by simply having others around you. That is, that is knit into the very fabric of how we are wired as human beings. And so we see competition serving such a healthy and positive uh, kind of role in our lives you know, but what can happen and what a lot of us experience when we talk about it from a negative perspective is when competition shifts from being that healthy performance enhancing drug that kind of pushes our bodies and our brains to be better, to do just a little bit more um, into the unhealthy realm, into the realm where it starts to consume us, where our focus shifts from why we're doing something or what we're aiming to achieve for ourselves to how does this measure up against other people? How am I measuring up against other people? Um, and, and kind of allowing ourselves to lean into a space where competition becomes consuming, it becomes detrimental, it can become harmful, um, it can become overwhelming, and it can put individual performance above collective good. It can put personal success above community benefit to a degree at which we stop caring about how our actions impact others or we stop caring about other people at all. And when we start only focusing on what we get out of something, we start only focusing on our climb to the top, regardless of who we hurt along the way. So those are two very different extremes of the same conversation. But the point here trying to be illustrated is that we all are going to compete. We are all competitive in one way or another. That's never going away. So this mindset isn't saying, get rid of it, let go of it. This mindset is simply saying, let's acknowledge it. Let's understand our drive to compete. Let's, let's know where it comes from. And then let's shift our mindset in a direction where we understand it, we embrace it, and yet we still choose a mindset of putting others, 
you know, in, in the scope of how we perform. And we, we understand how our actions impact them, that we see community as a way for all of us to rise and thrive together and not as something that's going to take away from our ability to succeed or our joy. And so it's a little bit of a mindset shift met with quite a bit of understanding how we're wired and uh, the opportunities that that presents us. I love that. I mean, there's just so much we could unpack there, but I I just like as you were talking, I was thinking about examples of that in just my my life and my history and I was thinking about when I was teaching dance and and I was a competitive dancer, although our whole lives were rooted in competition. If something happened with a neighboring team, we would come together to support that team. I remember there was like, you know, a, a natural disaster or something that happened with a team that we were competing against and we all came together to fundraise for them. We still competed against them, you know, that, that didn't go away, but the community aspect was there. And I think that oftentimes like as small business owners and entrepreneurs, because that's who's listening to this right now, uh, we kind of forget that part of it, that we are still a part of a community, even if our businesses are thriving on competing with other business owners or whatever to like gain clients. How can we, how can we reframe that in our minds? Like I'm sure, I know this is stuff that you talk about in the book. So like, I'm excited to hear, you know, some ways that we can get past that comparison because it is so, it becomes so unhealthy when competition, healthy competition turns into unhealthy comparison. I think that's when people start to struggle. Mm, yes, I totally agree. And I love your example with dance competitions and sort of dance teams. I think that first it kind of begins by understanding that the group boundaries that we create in our mind are arbitrary. And I'll give you a little example. There's a story in the book where I talk about being a kid and sitting on a park bench at recess and a friend of mine looking over at me and asking a very simple question that I had never been asked before. Are you an any or an Audi? And I look at her and I'm like, I don't even know what she's talking about. Like at that point in my life, I didn't know what that meant. And I was like, oh gosh, okay, quick, act cool. I was like, what do you mean? You know? And she goes, no, your belly button. Like, are you an innie or an Audi belly button? And the question again, quite simple. I thought about it and I go, I'm, I'm an innie. I have an innie belly button. She looks at me and she goes, me too. We're both innies, team innie. And I was like, cool, team innie. And suddenly I was a part of the innie group, right? Um, whereas somebody else might be a part of the Audi group, having an Audi belly button. And, you know, I reference this during the book and I go into far more detail, but the point being that the way she framed that question set up group boundaries. There were those of us who had any belly buttons and those of us who had Audi belly buttons. In this case, we're talking about a silly example, but this is how the brain works. And it has immense consequences, both for us as individuals and collectively as the world, because we set these group boundaries based on things that in some cases are visible, in other cases are invisible, in some cases are significant, in other cases are completely insignificant belly buttons. Um, but the framing of the question created the boundary. And once creating the boundary, it was us versus them. And in the book, I talk about what a different question it would have been had she asked me, do you have a belly button? Because the scope of where that group boundary would have been drawn would have looked very different. Now she's asking me a question if I have a belly button, in which case there's no innies and no outies. There's humankind against, I guess, those without the belly button. And, and so in the framing of the question, when we ask, how do we move beyond feeling like it's me versus my competitor, that it's my industry versus the client, that it's whatever the boundary is, it starts by asking a different question. It starts by reframing how we look at that group boundary. And I want to be clear. The boundaries have consequences. They exist in all different aspects of, of human life and existence. So by saying they're arbitrary, I'm not saying they're insignificant. But what I am saying is that we can change them 
cognitively just by taking that question and reframing it and changing it. So what I suggest first is not looking at someone else that does what you do as your competitor, but asking a different question and asking, are they my colleague? Are they doing the same thing that I'm doing? Are we a part of the same industry, the same group that's up against an immense amount of challenges? And I'll give a really, really relative example here, a great example here, because this just happened to all of us, is what I mean, a recent example here, the pandemic. So at the start of the pandemic, I want us to remember as business owners what it felt like to go from operating in daily life, many of us aware of our competitors, maybe paying attention to our competitors, maybe in our local markets, especially for those of us that are service-based in a local geographical region, you know, and being very cognizant of what they were doing with how they were performing and what they were up against. All of a sudden, it went from us against our competitor to, okay, it is business owners against a pandemic. It is all of us who our livelihoods now have been threatened, regardless of which business you run, the world is being shut down. We now have an opportunity to reframe that group boundary and to see us as a united front to lobby for PPP legislation, to reach out and support one another with rescheduling, to share contract language, to understand force majeure and what we need to be adding to our contracts to protect one another, to share resources. I could go on and on and on, but we witnessed a huge cultural shift in the industry at the very start of the pandemic where we stopped looking at one another as, well, I can't share anything with her. I can't tell them what I'm doing. I can't tell you know him what I'm up to, to how are all of us going to survive? And that reframing of the group boundary is, is something that I, I want us to hang onto. I want us to cling to, not disregarding that, yes, we still compete, but instead saying, I know that we compete, but when we're not in the arena, when I'm not sitting down in front of a client, like when I'm, when I'm in that room with a client, of course, I'm going to give it my all. I'm going to show up. I'm going to share exactly why I'm the best option for them or what I have to offer. Why, if they're my ideal client, the right fit or whatever it is, I'm, I'm going to show up and give my best. And I'm not going to say anything mean about another business owner. I'm never going to do that. Or again, like we talk about ethics, we talk about operating from a place of respecting one another, but I am going to give it my all, right? The minute I'm out of that meeting, the minute I'm operating that business beyond the scope of that arena, that moment of competition, the match, right? If we want to think of it from an athletic perspective, uh, the minute I'm out of the match, you're my community. I'm not competing against you. Like you need something, I'm there. You get sick, I'll show up and, and be your replacement. You need advice, I've got your back. You're struggling with something, let me know how I can help. Your detriment is not going to help me succeed, right? So it's about switching the mindset. It's about embracing sort of a, a different approach to the future of running our businesses where we're operating from that place of it's us against the world. Like it's us against every statistic that tells small business owners they're not going to succeed. It's us against the technological changes that are keeping the entire world on their toes and the industry on their toes, certainly, so that we can all adapt and grow and share, share what's working and share what's not working so that people are operating from a place of having access to knowledge, having access um, to support, having access to community and not being denied that out of fear, not being denied that out of an, a mindset of scarcity, not being denied that because we can't possibly want a newcomer to succeed. Right. And it's just about shifting that mindset and, and kind of being aware that these boundaries cognitively, they, they we're, we're aware of them. We make them sometimes, sometimes subconsciously, but a lot of times consciously we're making these, these uh, boundaries in our minds. Um, and so it's about really evaluating that and kind of challenging that and reframing that and 
doing the work that's required within ourselves so that when we go out into the world, we can be the type of business owner that genuinely does not feel threatened by others in our community, that genuinely wants to see them succeed. And it does require a little bit of mental gymnastics, but it, it is worth every single reframed thought when you get to the other side. I love that. I feel like I'm super excited as you're talking to think about like not only the movement that you created years ago, because I was, I mean, I started my business before community over competition was like a well-known phrase before Rising Tide Society and before you were um, making your massive waves that really changed our industry. And it was extremely cutthroat and it was very rare to find what you're talking about now. So I'm so excited to see the impact that the book is going to make on just the world, not just our creative community. But I just, I really love everything that you just shared about it and I couldn't agree more. I feel like, uh, I don't know, even, even thinking back to the multiple small businesses that I've, you know, created and grown over the past few years, it would have been so much more difficult to really like be able to grow them without the support of my community. And I only have that because I was able to make that mental shift. So can we talk really quickly about like what you would say to somebody who's really struggling with comparison in the season and really like leaning into you talk I know when you've been on the show before, we've talked about abundance versus scarcity mindset. And like I just feel like no matter how much we talk about it, there are still times when we struggle, everybody struggles with it. But what would you say if somebody's having just like a really hard season of it right now? Mm. So first I want to quote my wise, amazing, brilliant friend, Laylee, um, with the saying that, you know, the comparison doesn't go away when we put down our phones. And that comparison, just like competition, will always be a part of how we are wired, but it also... Um, can't be simply erased by disconnecting from social media. And I, I want to start there because I have talked about uh, scarcity and abundance mindset. And in the book, I write about it and kind of reference like the origins of that and where that came from and kind of now how I look at it as sort of like many, many years later from the original, um, the original author that, that kind of coined that phrase. But let's, let's look at it from a little bit of a different lens here. Let's tackle it from the perspective of so, so often when we talk about comparison, we are talking about how it relates to the way we view other people. And especially in the last 18 months, the way we are engaging with others happens to be virtually. It happens to be on these platforms um, like Instagram or TikTok or Facebook or you name it. And so while a lot of the sort of modern advice on the subject is, well, just take a break, turn off your phone, step away from it. I, I'm not a believer in that. I'm actually not a huge advocate for that as a, a true solution. Now, I'll be clear. I'm not saying that breaks from social media can't be great for your mental health. Absolutely. But what I'm trying to tackle is if we're not doing the hard work of addressing the problem, then we're simply, you know, finding a, a short-term solution that's not really going to cure the disease. We're saying, I'm going to take a break every time I feel like I'm comparing myself too much to other people on the internet or when it leaves me feeling like I'm falling behind or when it leaves me feeling, you know, sad or disconnected. And, and we're not changing the way we're engaging with these platforms such that we don't have to feel that way. We don't have to let these platforms lead us down a path where the end result is burnout, exhaustion, and disconnection from others. We can leverage these platforms when we understand, you know, how they're run and operated and the challenges we're up against. If we talk about in the book, we talk about the algorithms that are designed to keep us scrolling and how that keeps money in the pockets of these platforms. And um, it's funding these social media giants. If we talk about it, we get to, the, okay, let's really address the issue here. 
But then we also can kind of take a step back and say, but how am I participating? How am I engaging? And I'll give you a very specific example. If you're listening to this and you find yourself often at the end of the road here that I'm referencing, when you, when you go down the journey of scrolling or picking up your phone, the end of the road looking like comparison, the end of the road looking like feeling like you're falling behind, feeling almost overwhelmed and stressed because you, I can't keep up. I can't do these, you know, I can't be creating reels every day like so-and-so. And then I can't be doing X, Y, Z like this person. And I'm not having this success like this person. If that's the, the end of the road where you're landing before you turn off the phone, then let's have a real heart to heart here about how you're opening up and starting your engagement on social media. And here's what I mean. There, there's a psychological study that was done to try to understand how social media leads to mental health outcomes because so much research that's been done on social media shows connection between the amount of time spent on a social media platform and negative mental health consequences. And we've seen like these, these studies have been done over and over. These other scientists said, well, I'm just not convinced um, that, that we're seeing the whole picture here. And they looked at it with a slightly different perspective. And instead of just simply measuring time spent on social media and mental health outcome, they looked at how someone uses social media and mental health outcome. And they divided it into two categories. One being using social media to connect with others and the other being using social media to consume content. And when we open our phone and the first thing that we do is consume content. The first thing that we do is see what other people are doing. The first thing that we do is scroll and scroll and scroll. That leads to a negative mental health uh, sort of on the other side of it. That leads to um, you know, increased rates of things like depression. And I would argue comparison, although not looked at in the study. And that leads you down the road of consumption, 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 and leaving on the other end of that feeling, you know, these feelings that, that we're talking about. Whereas on the flip side, this study showed that when someone opens social media and they're using it to connect, they're actually picking up the platform because I want to check on Laylee and like ping her about what she's up to, or I want to check on my biz bestie, see what she's doing, cheer for her, get on her account, you know, root for her, hop into my DMs there is a significantly different outcome to how you feel at the other side of that. So if you're picking up your phone and the first thing you're doing is consuming, what I want to challenge you to do is to pick up your phone and do one of two things. Either connect, go onto the platform, make a list. I, this is a, a really easy way to start changing your behavior. Make a list of five people that this month you want to connect with. Five people that when you pick up your phone, you want to intentionally go connect with, engage uh, maybe with what they're doing, cheer for them, root for them whatever it looks like, that list of five, put it on a sticky note, wherever you normally are working or scrolling or whatever it would be that you're, you know, how you're engaging so that you are connecting first before you consume and even limit the amount of consumption you're allowing yourself a day in terms of scrolling on that platform and just seeing what other people are up to. That's one route to go about it. The other route would be if, if not connecting, it's kind of an and or, then creating. So not stepping on the platform just to consume, but instead stepping on to share and to create. So actually using it as an outlet to say, here's what I've been working on. Here's something cool I'm doing. Using it for that, um, that purpose that ultimately it's supposed to be used for, for many of us as business owners or marketers or creators. And so taking how you're using it, flipping it on its head, moving away from consumption and moving instead towards connection and towards creation. I am here for that tactical approach. I am living for it. Thank you. That's amazing. Um, yeah, I love, I love the both of those ideas. And I feel like there is power in stepping away, but I, I do think that it's just a symptom of a larger problem. And um, thanks for quoting me. Ooh, I feel so special. 
But no, that's amazing. I I completely agree, obviously. Wow. You have given so many things for people to think about. I'm so, so excited for everybody to be able to hear this episode and really like have those tangible things to start working toward. I'd love to hear, I mean, I feel like you already kind of shared some, but your unpopular opinion on community over competition on any of on any and all of this, but I, I know you won't shy away. <laughs> I mean, there are a lot. I do. I do. Okay, look, I do have a lot of unpopular opinions. Um, we can start. We'll start with where we just kind of were discussing. Unpopular opinion number one, taking a break from social media is not the answer. Unpopular opinion number two, quitting social media isn't the solution. You know, when we talk about that or we see that advice given, again, I'm, I'm just going to emphasize it is a short-term pick-me-up. It is not going to be a long-term solution. And in the book, we talk about why. In the book, we go into detail and um, you know, we, we really, really dive in, but I'll just say this. We live in a digitally connected world. You can no longer think about your life in terms of physical over here and digital over there, which leads me to unpopular opinion number three. And that is that internet friends are real friends. This is an opinion where I admit in the book openly, I was wrong. When I first started Rising Tide, I thought that digital relationships, digital connection, online community was inferior. I thought that physical connection and in-person relationships were the only answer to curing loneliness. And I want to be very clear. I was wrong. And it wasn't just the past 18 months that transformed my opinion on this. It was, frankly, a conversation with my sister-in-law that really shifted my perspective because when the pandemic hit, I was someone who had built my whole career on cultivating community. That's that's what I do. I create communities. I love in-person meetups. I still love in-person meetups. I'm aching for them. Um, I'm aching for big events. I keep saying I love being around a crowded table, you know, where you're like stuffed in like sardines. Like that brings me joy. It really, really does. However, when the pandemic first hit, I was terrified. I I remember having a conversation with my sister-in-law on the back porch and you know, socially distant back porch. And I just said to her, I said, I don't know how I'm going to make it through this without my meetups in person. Like, I I mean, I started a community because of my loneliness. What am I supposed to do if we can't get together? And you know what she said to me? She says, and and to give a little context, my sister-in-law has cystic fibrosis. And she said to me in the CF community, we've always had to be six feet apart. This isn't a new recommendation for us. In the CF community, I can't be within six feet of another patient who has cystic fibrosis because we will share lung bacteria and actually could make one another much sicker. So we've always had to maintain physical distance, but Nat, that is not what defines a community. Some of my closest relationships are with other folks going through what I'm going through, even if we can't be in the same room or even if we can't be, you know, within six feet. And it just, it kind of rattled my brain a little. I'm like, oh, tell me more, tell me more. And she started to talk about how all of these innovations that many of us who have not experienced what she has experienced, for those of us who haven't been part of a chronic illness community, for people listening to this, that the first time they've experienced needing to be physically distant was during the pandemic. We have seen these innovations and these adaptations happen over the course of the last 18 months, and they're new to us, but they're not new. Um, She referenced like online book clubs and digital movie nights and, you know, like podcast groups that they would chat about podcasts they're into, and they might have to do it virtually, but it, it didn't diminish the relationships. If anything, it enabled them through digital connection to discover people who were going through uniquely what they were going through and build a bond, forge a friendship that is unlike any other. 
And so unpopular opinion number three is that internet friends actually, in fact, are real friends. That digital community can be, when we lean into it correctly, just as meaningful as in-person community. And I understand that for a lot of people listening to this, they're going to be in Natalie Frank mindset of 2017. And they're going to be like, look, I'm done with the virtual. Like, Do not tell me there's another webinar. I can't do it. I hear you. But I, I really, again, I just want to emphasize that as we move forward, as we look to the future, as we think about a world where we are all hoping that the pandemic that we are enduring now and have been enduring dissipates, we're all hoping for that. In that future, what I want to encourage us to do as well, and the book tries to hit this home, is not to run back to the way things were. There is no returning to normal. A lot of us don't want to return to what life was like before. And, and if you're someone saying, are you sure? Yes, 40% of the workforce is contemplating quitting their jobs in 2021, 40%. April saw one of the largest numbers of people, 2.7% of the American workforce quit in April alone. And people are estimating that's lower than what's about to happen in September and October. So when I say no one wants to go back, you know, maybe they're 60%, maybe might be hanging on to that job, but 40% of people are saying, I don't, I, I'm, I'm done professionally. I, I can't keep operating the way I was operating. I don't want, I don't want the two hour commute daily. I don't want to be away from my home. I can work from home. I can still do my job well. And that applies to so many different aspects of our lives. The digital conveniences and advancements of the last 18 months in so many different facets um, are here to stay. And ultimately there is no returning to the way things are. And so what I want to advocate for, in unpopular opinion number three, is that we look to the future with more opportunity. We look to the future as a place where we can be both physically connected and digitally connected, where if we are enduring something in our lives that's unique to us or that is rare in our, our community, and I'll, you know, I'll use a very specific example in my own life. I'll give two. And they're not even that rare, but you know, one being infertility, going through infertility, I, in my immediate circle, at the, when I first was diagnosed and told that I was going through infertility, I didn't know a single other person who was considering IVF, not in my small circle, especially not coming from a Catholic background and upbringing. Like that was just not, not talked about. I didn't have the support that I needed. So what did I do? I went online and I found an online Facebook group with other people going through fertility treatment. And I, I dove in, I showed up, I started connecting with people. And today on the other side of years of this, some of my closest in-person friends and digital friends um, have been through a similar experience. And we've been able to bond and bond and forge a friendship that is unlike any other. The same with being diagnosed with a benign brain tumor. I still, you know, in my physical life, don't know anyone else that had, had gone through that. But I know plenty of people on the internet that either are going through it, have gone through it, and they became my family and still are part of my family through digital connections. So what I'm encouraging here is to acknowledge that there is such benefit here. It used to be that you might be the only person in your circle who's ever gone through something. And now you can open up the internet and immediately find other people that can connect with you in your unique situation, circumstances, dreams, desires. It's not just negative, like your hopes and your goals. You might be the only person right now dreaming as big as you're dreaming right? We've all, a lot of us have faced that. A lot of us have people in our circle telling us we can't do it. Who are we to think we can accomplish that? Why would we possibly quit that steady job and go out and build that business? You might be the only person in your physical circle feeling that way right now. Who are you to want to stand on a stage and teach? Because this is what Laylee does, y'all. She, she empowers people to go out and do that thing. You might be the only person in your physical world 
feeling called to go out and do something big. But let me tell you something. Laylee's creating a community around it. Laylee has a mastermind about it. There are groups and places where then you can go digitally and immediately be connected with people thinking, dreaming, hoping for more. So both in things we struggle with and in hopes we have for our future, my point being, and I'll, I'll sum it up here, Laylee, I promise, I know I'm going off on a little tangent. Um, popular opinion number three, internet friends are real friends. And the future is not just in the physical world. The future is in an integrated world where we see both our digital and our physical relationships as meaningful to us. And we move forward accordingly. Oh my goodness. Well, you know, I love that. You know, I agree. I feel like definitely the closest relationships that I've built within like the entrepreneurial and creative space have definitely been virtual, have definitely been online friends that have then, um, you know, transferred into real life friends. And that's just, that's just, I agree that integration of the two is, is something that is unavoidable. It just is our world. Um, and I think that's, that's kind of a hard reality for a lot of like millennials and older to deal with because we were always taught at a young age. Like I remember, oh my gosh, I'm about to age myself so bad, but I remember when we got the internet, like that was a big deal. And I wasn't allowed to talk to people on the internet. Like it was scary. And so, um, I think reframing that as an adult, is is definitely a journey for a lot of people. So I love that you shared that. And oh my gosh, I love all three of your unpopular opinions, obviously. And I'm so excited. I'm so excited for everybody to get their hands on your book and to learn more about this important topic. It's like Natalie mentioned, it's called Built to Belong. And I'm going to like you jump in if I say any of this wrong, but you can pre-order it now. Yeah. Um, I know because I did. So I don't know why I'm acting like I don't know. And then you can also join the launch team through when, Natalie? When 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 can people get an early copy of this? Yes. Okay. So here's here are all the options. I'll just throw them out on the table. So one would be if you're like, okay, this sounds interesting, or I yeah, I'm just I'm really curious because I'll, I'll I will say this: every single person who has read this book front to back has said the same thing to me, which is, "Wow, that was not what I was expecting." And they say this. And I've heard it from like, I literally have someone says, I hate self-help books. It ain't a self-help book. There's enough science in there that I was taking notes. Like this was excellently researched. And I have another friend that's like your stories. Like I, so, so there's a lot for everybody, but my point being, it may not be what you expect. So if you're someone who's like, I just want to pre-order the book, go for it. You can either pre-order um, a hard copy of the book, or it just went up on, um, for audiobook on Audible. So if you're an audiobook listener, you got credits in your Audible, Audible account, go pre-order it on Audible. It'll drop right into your account when it goes live. Um, if you're someone that's like, not only do I need the book in my life, but I can't wait, Matt, like I've, I want to read it right now. You can join our launch team. All you have to do is pre-order the book, submit a form so that we have your address. We can send you some perks and goodies in the mail and join a Facebook group and you get immediate digital access to the manuscript. You can start reading today. Although anyone who pre-orders, if you submit to my website, will get access to chapter one, both audio and digital so that you can dive in and start to see what, what you're in for. And like I said, it, I have a feeling for a lot of folks, even those who know me well, even those who have heard me speak for a long time, a lot of heart research um, went into this book, both heart and research, and it, it may not be what you expect. And I hope that's in a really good way. So I want to encourage you to pre-order and or join our launch team, be a part of it. Lately, in the launch team. It, it is a really sweet group. We are over 400 people now, and the feedback has just been amazing. And we're doing some kind of cool things, even beyond the book, some random acts of kindness and um, loving on some people. It, it's fun. It's just a cool group to be a part of. So highly recommend. Would love for you to pre-order. Would love to have you on the lunch team. 
That is amazing. I I love being a part of the launch team myself. I think it's something that is super fun to have like that feeling of community around for sure. So I'm excited for people to get their hands on the book. I'm excited. I'm like halfway through and I can say I agree that it is not what I expected, but like in a great way. So I'm super excited about that too. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you so much for having me. And again, life goal to be the most frequent guest. On the podcast. You're on your way. You're on your way. I think if you come back one more time, you'll have everyone else beat. So I'll see you at the next episode for sure. Can't wait. Thank you for having me. For show notes and resources mentioned on today's episode, head to so here's the thing podcast.com. And if you're enjoying the podcast, I'd love to read your review in iTunes. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll catch you in the next episode.